1: The Nation magazine. This is Start Making Sense Political Talk Without the Boring Parts. I'm John Weiner. Now that Mueller's report has been completed, we expect Trump will return with a vengeance to talking about, among other things, his wall. Trump's wall has become a powerful symbol of a radically new idea about what America stands for. Historian Greg Grandin will comment. Also, Trump is now claiming he received total exoneration from the Mueller report. He's calling his opponents treasonous. He's vowing to pursue and even punish those responsible for the Russian investigation. What would it be like if he got his way? What would it be like if there were no way to restrain him? Adam Hochschild says it would be like the three-year period of censorship, mass imprisonment, and deportations during World War I under Woodrow Wilson. But first... We're still thinking about Robert Mueller reporting that he did not find evidence to charge Trump with conspiracy with Russia in the election, and he wasn't taking a position for or against bringing charges of obstruction of justice. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent, and his most recent book is Horsemen of the Trump Apocalypse*. John, welcome back.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you,
1: John. So... Robert Mueller conducted an exhaustive investigation. He issued 2,800 subpoenas. He conducted 500 search warrants. He confirmed the conclusions of the CIA, the NSA, and the FBI that Russian operatives, quote, "...conducted disinformation and social media operations in the United States to sow social discord, eventually with the aim of interfering with the election." And that, quote, Russian government actors successfully hacked into and obtained emails from various Democrats and disseminated those materials through various intermediaries, including WikiLeaks, close quote. But we are told Trump did not conspire with them to do those things, according to Attorney General Bill Barr's summary of the Mueller report. What do you think of Barr's summary of the Mueller report?
2: I think that one of the huge mistakes of this moment, there's a rush to say, is this thing over? Has he been exonerated? You know, what I'm no. Pause, stop. We should all be looking at William Barr. Because that's that's about all we know right now, John. We know that there's a great big report with, I would imagine, hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper, uh, all sorts of information, much of it incredibly valuable. Regarding what I believe is clearly obstruction of justice, but also the Russia inquiry, and also broader questions of the vulnerability of the American election system, structural vulnerabilities, which I think I, I believe that the Borrow or the Mueller report will outline or at least point to some concerns regarding. You know, this guy has essentially, at this point, reduced it to four pages. And there seems to be an effort to get us to walk away. I, I, I won't do that. I think that's an absurdity. Donald Trump has not been exonerated. We do not. We have not seen the report. We have not had proper inquiry by congressional committees into what Mueller determined and also to how Barr has approached this. The guy who last summer, just last summer, said, you know, I really don't put a lot of stock in all this uh Looking at Trump on on all this stuff, and especially this obstruction of, you know, obstruction of justice all that. I mean, it that doesn't really work for me. I don't like I don't like how they're doing it. So you truck all you truck the report, and frankly, you have the availability of all this paperwork over to to William Barr. and instead of reviewing the report, and then say, "Oh man, I've got some questions about that. Can we get some files on that? Can I maybe even, you know, ask some questions to some of the players? Maybe even, maybe even question the president himself, or you know, just follow up on some things." Instead of doing any of that, he says, "You know what? I think I'll take a an afternoon and write up a four page note that extends dramatically beyond what we." assume is in the report to actually make some major conclusions and pop it over to the appropriate folks. And, and we're supposed to say, everything's done. I mean, with all due respect, William Barr did not do his job unless his job was to give Donald Trump a get out of jail free card. That's all he did. And with all due respect, that's
1: embarrassing. Well, let's look at the second part of what Bill Barr reported about Mueller's report, that Mueller could not come to a conclusion about obstruction of justice and apparently left that to Barr, who, as you say, had already said a year ago that the president couldn't be charged with obstruction of justice. This is seems to me and lots of other People, it's a huge failing of Robert Mueller, and one that's hard to understand. The whole point of getting a special counsel was to have an independent investigation and not put it in the hands of political appointees who are loyal to the president. Since he knew, uh, we knew what Barr would conclude.
2: I wouldn't even say that Barr is loyal to the president. That's that's where it gets really interesting here. I think Barr is loyal to an extreme view of the executive branch. This is a guy who for the better part of 30 years has been advancing a vision of a imperial presidency. So we know him to be an ideologue and his ideology is that you pretty much can't hold presidents to account. They are essentially above the law. As John Dean said, if this was the the you know operating premise during the Nixon years, and I'm obviously paraphrasing, Dean, you can read his tweets and articles on this. But if this is the operating premise during the Nixon years, we would have had a very hard time getting Nixon to even ponder resigning. <laughs> you know, because he'd be above the law.
1: Well, Barr told us that the Mueller report contains descriptions of the case for charging Trump with obstruction of justice, as well as the case against charging him. And Barr wrote in his memo that for each action, the report sets out evidence on both sides of the question. Would you like to see the evidence that Trump obstructed justice? I'd like the House Judiciary Committee to see the evidence. You know, I mean, it's fine if I see it as well, and I, and I hope I would.
2: But with all due respect, I'd like the people who can actually do something about this. Because we have a constitution that's supposed to, you know, have checking and balancing. And this is my concern. I think that Mueller is, is indeed a Boy Scout, right? I mean drives a Subaru, as as we learned the other day. So you know, he's a very responsible guy. The the bottom line is I am sure that the report does detail all the arguments that there's obstruction and all the arguments that there was an obstruction. And <laughs> I would really like to read them, because what if, let's just offer a concept here, what if there's like, I don't know, 10,000 pages of arguments that there was obstruction, and like a paragraph that's saying, but, you know, William Barr says there isn't. <laughs> you know, I would I'd just like to read it, and let, and in fact, and let the people, and frankly, our Congress, make decisions about it.
1: I want to go back to the political fallout from this. A lot of pundits are telling us that now Democrats won't be able to run in 2020 on Russiagate, on collusion. They'll have to emphasize other issues instead. But wait a minute, I thought the Democratic candidates already have been (laughs) emphasizing The issues, Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, you know, free college tuition. That's why they did so well in 2018. Did I miss collusion as the Democratic Party campaign theme? Yeah, how ridiculous
2: would somebody be if they just ran on collusion? And then Trump would come back and say, that's just, you know, it's a lie. And then would pivot. I guarantee you, Trump would pivot in like, five seconds after you know diminishing his opponent to talk about the economy, talking about, you know, whatever other bragging he wants to do about his sense that he's been a good president. No, there was never any suggestion that Democrats were going to run in 2020 on collusion. Now let us look at all the other issues of the sitting president right now, the emoluments clause, you know, concerns about his family continuing to do business and in what look to be very corrupt ways, concerns about foreign policy decisions uh, on a host of issues that look as if they might be influenced by his uh, own personal uh, agenda, the things that Michael Cohen has raised as regards lawless, uh, illegal activities done by the sitting president as regards covering things up and doing payoffs and things like that. You know, I mean, even the guy's taxes. So the fact of the matter is, There's still a host of issues about Trump accountability that if people wanted to examine, they could and just say, well, he's a bad guy. You don't like him, whatever. Separate and apart from that, my argument has always been that our presidential campaigns at this point have moved into a new zone where people are looking actually less for personalities and more for a promise of dramatic change, a promise of a big break from the status quo. In 2020, the smart Democrats are going to run on a vision of how to break with a status quo that I might mention Trump has maintained. Donald Trump said he's going to go and drain the swamp. He didn't drain any swamp and he also didn't, you know, turn the tide against billionaires. He certainly didn't, you know, salvage the condition of the American working class. He's a failure on the promise of making a shift. The only thing that suggests that he has made a shift is the absurdity of his personal style. And so a Democrat who simply runs against Trump as a person would be making a massive mistake. But the answer to running on how you would run against him is put aside all this stuff and say, have we have we really altered the broken, failed status quo under Donald Trump? And we haven't. And so the simple answer is he should be replaced.
1: John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thanks, John. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Now that the Mueller report has been submitted, we expect Trump to return to his obsession with building a wall at our southern border, Something extremely popular with his base, those people who chant build the wall at rallies. It all suggests some powerful symbolism is at work here, and Greg Grandin suggests it's a radically new symbol for America. Greg teaches history at NYU. He's an award winning historian and a member of the Nation editorial board. His new book is The End of the Myth From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. Greg Grandin, welcome back. Thanks for having me on, John. Well, as the symbol of the ideals of the United States, the border wall is a big change from what used to symbolize America, the America that we held out as a model for the rest of the world to emulate. Let's start with the symbol that came before the wall.
3: The frontier and and the wide-open frontier, the, the, the symbol of American expansionism. There's the social experience of expansion, which is been present from the beginning or even the beginning of the foundation of the of the republic. And then there's the turning that experience into an ideology, into a nationalism, into foundation of American exceptionalism. And just to bring it back to the book, that 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 opposition between a wall which symbolizes closeness and 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 racism and a kind of uh, a kind of national kind of nativism. The frontier symbolized all of the all of the supposed opposites, openness, the place where the United States moved into the future and into the world, the place where even if you acknowledge the racism involved in indigenous dispossession and and the conquest of of Mexico, Mexican territory, you could at least credibly argue that that racism and extremism would be left behind as the U S moves into the future. And so I can't think of any better opposition, anything better that captures what's, what's specific about Trump and Trumpism than, than the wall, which so embodies what some, some scholars have called race realism, this sense that the frontier is closed, that, that there's not enough to go around that not everybody can sit at the table and that, and that we have to take care of our own. That's the kind of essence of of Trumpism. And it's captured and crystallized in in
1: in the wall, and of course, Trump's concept of our own uh, is different from yours and mine,
3: yeah, yeah. I think it's fairly clear that he has a, that he represents a kind of uh, a white supremacism, settler colonialism, whatever you want to call it. But he he represents a kind of national community that that uh, that is specifically white. I mean, it has deep history, deep deep uh, kind of uh, history in U.S. and U.S. and the U.S. experience. I mean, it is part of the you know, United States. is a settler colonial nation built on 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 the back of, of, of Native Americans, of African Americans. So that that kind of racism, that kind of that kind of nativism and and brutalism has been present but the myth of the frontier and the book is called the end of the myth but the myth of the frontier allowed a kind of sublimation if you will or at least a uh, ideological suppression of the most brutal and exclusionary parts of that of that expansionist history and i think what trump represents is pulling it out and 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 turning it into spectacle, into a politics, right? So it's not its not that he's, you know, this is the argument about Trump. He either represents something entirely unprecedented in U.S. history, a violation of, of U.S.'s democratic and institutional proceduralism and a history of tolerance, or he represents the culmination of, of centuries of brutal settler colonialism and racism. And I think thinking about the, the, the history of U.S. expansion is a way to get out of that dichotomy and think about how Trump both is and isn't unique to U.S. history and why he's particular, why he's possible during this specific moment.
1: You've called the frontier and frontier expansion a myth. Could it be that Trump's call to build the wall represents a more accurate assessment of how the world actually works, especially compared to the myth of the frontier? The frontier promised Endless possibilities. The wall points to an era of limits and claims to represent realism about uh, economic stagnation.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, it is tempting to think of the wall as as, rep- as a disenchantment, as a, as a revelation of the illusion and the mirage of of the earlier period of economic globalization of 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 the earlier expansionist period. I mean, the myth, the frontier ultimately was a, a, a myth, a mirage. It, it promised to lift all boats, to sit everybody at the table, but it, it actually masked a, a deeply unequal distribution of economic resources and economic and political power. So there's, there's a way in which there's a sense that the wall is a more accurate reflection of how the world works, a kind of brutal race realism that, that, that organizes National politics, around the idea of limited resources, around the idea that 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 not everybody will sit at the table, not everybody that all boats will be lifted. But I think two things. one, I think it, it it's its own form of illusion. It, it, you know, this the point about the wall is to I mean Trump's genius is that he figured out the wall was a way to talk about capitalism without without challenging the premises of capitalism. And hence, that's its own illusion, right? It's he, 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 it's it's the illusion is that that if we build the wall, we can go on as we were. We could restore this myth of kind of it's kind of a, like a petulant hedonism that Trump himself embodies. Remember, he said yeah, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose <laughs> any support. I mean, there's a there's an impunity there. There's a there's a there's a immunity. There's a sense. Uh, in which Trump represents a, defi- a white supremacist—I I would frankly say—a white supremacist definition of freedom as freedom from restraint. You know, and and in this kind of restoration of a very brutal notion of freedom, and and hedonistic and nihilistic definition of freedom, cruelty becomes the symbolic cultural representations of that definition of freedom. So, we—who's going to tell us we can't torture? Who's going to tell us we can't put children in detention centers? Who's going to tell us that we can't separate families? Like, you know, there's a way in which, you know, the cruelty itself becomes expressions of of American freedom.
1: Of course, not everybody in America has been chanting, build the wall. Young people, people of color and women uh, have been talking about uh a $15 minimum wage, free college tuition. Some have been talking about Medicare for all and a Green New Deal. So the the competing visions of the future uh, have never really been farther apart than they are right now.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of the argument of the book. Um, the argument of the book is that this kind of frontier universalism. Uh, marginalized extremism in American political culture. and by extremism, I mean both white supremacy and racism that's inherent in settler colonialism, but it also marginalized more social and or socialist uh, challenges to private property. and it put forward a kind of vital centrism as the highest expression of americanism and And the argument is that that centrism, that frontier universalism could only be maintained. It was created through expansion and it could only be maintained as long as expansion remained a viable uh, option for America's political class as a way of organizing domestic politics. Now that that moment is over, now that nobody can p- point to beyond the frontier and say, that's where our problems will be solved. Uh, you know, nobody could, Invoke endless growth as a way of solving social and domestic problems. Now that that's over, I think we've seen an evaporation of the center and and a and a kind of you know this option that other countries have had to confront and they confronted in different ways, but was long deferred in the United States. This choice between barbarism and socialism is 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 now becoming the primary way of organizing or thinking about domestic politics. So I think in 2016, it wasn't a coincidence that the choice was between barbarism and socialism, at least in the democratic primary and versus Trump. And now it seems like we're moving in that direction again. Young people, for the first time, a majority believe that social rights are are an indispensable element of so of political citizenship that's a that among you could we could define american exceptionalism in many many different ways but but a but a fetish of individual rights and and political and 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 political rights and uh, a sense that social rights are perverse or 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 dangerous or or heresy has been a foundation of American exceptionalism. And that and that's changing. People think that a right to education, a right to health care, and a right to a dignified life are fundamental rights.
1: One more thing. Someday, Trump will be gone. Maybe it'll be January 20th, 2021. What will happen then to the white people who've been chanting, build the wall?
3: Well, it's a great question. I mean, I think they're up for grabs. I mean, I, I'm not a political scientist and... and, and and uh, I, I I think the power of Trump to a large, I mean, I don't know. This is a good question. I don't know. On the one hand, I, uh, Trumpism precedes Trump. I think that there's, there's a deep history there that Trump came along and pulled together and articulated and figured out how to unify and crystallize um, uh, without that center of gravity, without that standard bearer does it does it all come apart does does, does it base become more receptive for other ways of organizing politics? i mean it's it's a good question. I mean, I think we're in the middle of a major realignment, political realignment across the board. I mean, obviously in the democratic party, but but I think when Trump's gone in the Republican Party too, and we'll see how that shapes up around issues of social rights, particularly probably health care and 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 economic inequality.
1: Greg Grandin, his new book is The End of the Myth From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. Thank you, Greg. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. It's always a pleasure talking to you. has made it clear that he'd like to silence his critics. He'd like censorship of the media and jail or deportation for activists and people he considers enemies. What would it be like if he got his way, if there were no way to restrain him? Adam Hochschild has been thinking about that. He's an award-winning writer on social justice. I think my favorite of his many books is Bury the Chains. It's about the first movement to mobilize people against slavery. Succeeded at abolishing the slave trade in England in 1807. He teaches journalism at Berkeley. His new book is Lessons from a Dark Time. Adam Hochschild, welcome back.
4: Hi, John. It's good to be with you.
1: Well, you open your new book with a bold and original idea, What Trump would like to do to his critics, another president actually succeeded at doing. Tell us about that.
4: Let's roll back the clock a little over 100 years and listen to that president talking to Congress. I'll read you a quote from uh, something he said in 1915. There are citizens of the United States, I blush to admit, born under other flags, who have poured the poison of disloyalty into the very arteries of our national life. Such creatures of passion, disloyalty, and anarchy must be crushed out. Woodrow Wilson, talking to Congress in
1: 1915, amazing,
4: uh, gearing up for a period of severe repression in some ways, I think, the most serious such period we've experienced here in the United States from 1917 to 1920. I mean, I'm putting aside slavery, which was horrible repression of a different sort, but when you talk about repression of civil liberties, we always tend to think of the McCarthy era. But actually, I think that period, 1917 to 1920, uh, was the worst.
1: Well, when I was in high school, I blushed to say Woodrow Wilson was my favorite president because he wanted to end all wars. He wanted a League of Nations that would prevent future wars. He supported the eight-hour day. He supported votes for women. He signed the first income tax and the first antitrust act. And he'd been a history professor and a university (laughs) president. What could be better than that? Then I went to college. Then I learned about the stuff in in your book. Let's start about his attacks on immigrants. Who exactly did he go go after? And uh, how did he uh, succeed?
4: Several things were driving him, I think, at the one was right from really from the beginning, and you can find quotes on this from the the history book that he wrote. he was one of the people who felt as did uh, millions of Americans uh, uh, at that time who were descended from uh, People who'd been here for a few generations, who were mainly of, of British and German stock, they felt the the country was being polluted by all these unwashed immigrants, poor Jews from Eastern Europe, people from Southern Italy, uh, and the you know the Irish uh, Catholics, and that this was changing the sort of. Anglo-Saxon America that they had always uh, imagined existed. But, of course, America was never all Anglo-Saxon. There were Native Americans here. There were enslaved Africans here and so forth. But that was part of what was driving him. Then two other things happened. The United States entered the First World War, and that unleashed a tide of nasty patriotic chauvinism such as we've never really seen here. There's nothing like a war to sort of get people whipped up against, you know, imagined subversives everywhere. And then fast on the heels of that, in fact, almost simultaneously came the two stages of the Russian revolution culminating in uh, November, 1917 when the Bolsheviks uh, seized power. And, The people who ran the United States, the captains of industry, you know, the presidents, senators, and so forth, were terrified that something like that might happen here, as were governments all over Western Europe. And that really increased uh, the repression. And as I say, I think it was the worst civil liberties crisis that the U.S. has ever seen.
1: So censorship of the media, of course, is another one of Trump's uh, dreams, uh, Woodrow Wilson actually succeeded, you point out, in Lessons from a Dark Time. How did he do it? He,
4: he uh, got Congress to pass, pass laws giving him the powers to do these various things. The person who was in char- charge of his assault on the media was Sidney Albert Burlson, who was the attorney general, uh, and uh, sorry, the postmaster general. Why the Postmaster General, because the Postmaster General could regulate what traveled through the mail, and newspapers and magazines of all kinds uh, uh, you know especially those that were you know weeklies and monthlies published by political organizations, depended on the mail to reach their subscribers and Burleson, uh either censored whole issues of various publications or shut down, uh, either censoring single issues or shutting down entirely 75 different publications over the course of that three-year period. And they were particularly afraid of publications that were published in languages other than English, of which there were a lot because there were so many recent immigrants from Europe who preferred to read something in Serbo-Croatian or German or Italian or something else. And they passed a regulation saying that any of these foreign language publications, if they published anything to do with the war or commenting on the U.S. government or on one of the allied powers – that had to be translated into English and shown to the post office before it could be sold, before it could be, 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 mailed. be mailed. And, of course, that was a, a ruinous expense, and uh, you know, a lot of these publications just shut down.
1: And for English-language publications, what were they targeting? What did they not allow to go through the mails? Well,
4: they were very vague about it. They said... You know, anything which which questions the war effort or casts doubt on our allies. And Burleson refused to spell these things out in more detail. A delegation of lawyers, including Clarence Darrow, went to see him, but he didn't want to give them any more detail because, of course, any kind of edict like that is more threatening if it's vague. Yeah. Um, what they were really afraid of were, were two things. One would be anything that would threaten the war effort, mm-hmm. and closely related to that, anything that would, uh, you know, help uh, foment strikes, uh, the militant wing of the labor movement. The group that above all. Uh, the government wanted to crush and really did succeed in crushing was the wobblies, the industrial workers of the world, the IWW. Uh, They put more than a hundred wobblies on trial, brought them in freight cars from uh, all over the country to Chicago. They had a months long trial, uh, sentenced them all to long terms in prison, uh, raided uh, simultaneously, one day in 1917, four dozen wobbly offices all over the country, all the offices that the group had, confiscated tons and tons of material, never gave it back. Uh, several years later, it was always it, it was uh, burned. So mm-hmm. wobbly history literally went up in smoke.
1: Well, we need to find out what lessons can be drawn when American democracy was undermined so dramatically by the president. We're interested, of course, in the parallels to our own time. How come Wilson was able to succeed so thoroughly? Why wasn't there more effective opposition? And how does that. I mean, today it seems like there's a lot of opposition to Trump in a lot of different places.
4: There is. And I'm actually. Uh, Paradoxically, despite these Trumpian times we're living in, I have a little more faith in the system of checks and balances working today uh, than I would have in 1917, 1918. One reason is that we are not engaged in a full-scale war. Wars are always terrible for civil liberties. Yeah uh and you know yes we do have troops you know fighting in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and so forth but it's not the kind of overarching all out effort that the world wars was so i think that has made a different atmosphere today um but i think another uh, lesson we can take besides making sure those checks and balances uh function well is that the media has to be really really skeptical uh... and i feel the media is a stronger voice for truth today than it was in that period nineteen seventeen to nineteen twenty you look at how the media covered the repression that went on because there were literally thousands of radicals who were arrested in that period and sent to prison rarely in the mainstream press of the day, which meant daily newspapers, and we still do have a few of them left yes,
1: today. Too.
4: Uh mainly the mainstream press went along with this, cheerled for it, uh, you know, didn't didn't protest in an outspoken way. So I think the media is tremendously important. Another lesson that I took is that um, you know sometimes a determined person who may not be at the top of the bureaucracy, but is somewhere in the middle, can, by following the law and his or her conscience, really have an effect. Now, extreme right wingers would call this the deep state. Yes, but there was an interesting example uh, in nineteen nineteen twenty. There were somewhere between six thousand and ten thousand undocumented uh... immigrants who were arrested during that period this is the the period of they call the palmer raids named after attorney general a mitchell palmer the government wanted to deport these people these were folks who were immigrants some of them had not gotten naturalized properly as american citizens or the government was able to find some sort of fault with how they had been naturalized they arrested somewhere between six thousand and ten thousand people palmer was assisted by his deputy j edgar hoover Mm. Uh, the Justice Department had the power to arrest these people and lock them up you know, for weeks and months at a time, but deportations were controlled by the Immigration Bureau, which was under the Department of Labor. And there there was a guy named Louis F. Post, who was a progressive former newspaper man, uh, sort of inconspicuous-looking guy with rimless glasses and a Van Dyke beard. uh, And he followed the law, and he was able to stop about half of these deportations. He canceled search warrants. He restored habeas corpus rights for people who were detained, uh, reduced or eliminated bail for many of them. It earned him the undying hatred of J. Edgar Hoover, who unsuccessfully orchestrated a campaign by the American Legion for Post-dismissal. When that didn't work or, or tried to organize people in Congress to impeach Post, uh, that didn't work either. And this guy Post was able to pre- prevent about 3,000 people from being deported. So sometimes a middle-ranking bureaucrat you know, who follows the law, follows conscience, can actually do something good.
1: Adam Hochschild... His new book is Lessons from a Dark Time. It's a collection of essays about people who took a stand against despotism or spoke out against unjust wars in government surveillance and who fought for a more just world. Adam, thanks for talking with us today.
4: It's always a pleasure, John. And voices like yours, we need them more than ever these days.
1: Finally, on this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, Dave talks about the rot that envelops the NCAA. It's been more visible than ever this March. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com. <laughs> Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of the Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.